Live from New York City, it's The Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. Nice to have you with us today. Normally, we would be giving you the latest on health and healing, then take on the environment, have an interesting guest, and possibly have some time left over for social issues or talk back. However, today we're going to do it a little differently. For more than 35 years, every Sunday evening on WEVD, on, on ABC, on many different stations, WOR, I would answer questions that people had in the audience. And this entire hour is devoted to addressing questions or issues that you find important. So if you'd like to share some insights, something important, ask a question. The only thing I ask is your question would involve more than just you personally and specifically. So we'd like to select the questions that have universal appeal, where everyone could benefit from it. Now that said, our number to call in today is 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Now, joining me on the line is Luann Panessi. Luann has gotten a bunch of questions from people in the audience, and she'll be asking me those questions, plus we'll intersperse. Maybe a question from Luann and someone who likes to call in. During the week, a lot of people have been writing us their questions at prnstudio at gmail.com. That's prnstudio at gmail.com. So we'll see how this goes. And I'm here to address any issue that you find important. Hi, Luann. Nice to have you with us today. Hello, Gary. Well, should we start start right in? Yes. Okay. Well, what's most impressive is you have people that are writing in from all over the world, not just the, the local areas, but the whole, the whole world here. I have someone, uh, Louise, from Los Angeles. And uh, here's one. This is a question I think can really benefit everybody. She has um, a mother that was just diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, of course, she took her to the doctor, and the doctor wants to get her on three different drugs immediately. And she looked up the side effects of these drugs, and she was stunned that someone would put someone on these drugs. The side effects are just they're so, countless. There's too many to list. So she's asking, what would you do with someone like this? All right. First, I would educate myself. I believe in freedom of choice. That means that whatever you choose to engage in, first become informed. But look at the Internet. There are good places on the Internet, like Sayer G's uh, Green Med Info, where you can get quality information about medical treatments. There are thousands upon thousands of of different protocols given, but I would also look at what orthodox medicine has to offer, but then hold the standard. Do they have any actual proof that this works? And if so, what is it? Tonight, for example, I counseled a terminally ill person who has a glioblastoma, and they're recommending uh, radiation and then chemotherapy. Well, radiation could definitely shrink the tumor, and debulk it and allow uh, the, the type of brain activity to go on, providing that 
there's a protocol in place to handle the radicals, the free radicals, the hydroxyl free radicals, which are extremely damaging from radiation. I can find no literature that shows that chemotherapy is safe and effective against glioblastomas. So there's one way that you trust the doctor or the institution that the doctor belongs to. Generally, you don't hear people say, oh, my doctor, the oncologist, if they're associated with a respected institution like Sloan Kettering or MD Anderson or Roswell Park or Mayo Clinic, they'll say, oh, my doctor at the Sloan Kettering Institute, as if the association that doctor has in and of itself should be proof enough. There should be no questions asked beyond that. We should simply be compliant and go along. I remember some years ago, I had an opportunity to visit clinics around the world where I'd never been, where people were claiming they were able to help with cancer. Now, none of these people were in the public eye, and none of them met any criteria for being a quack. How do I know? I actually went to the American Cancer Society. I met and talked with a man named G. Cognitive Woods, who handled what they called the the Unproven Methods of Cancer Management List. This was a black book. This was a McCarthy-esque book. And if you were in there, you were considered a quack. You'd not get any funding or respect. So I went through what are the criteria that get you in this book. Interesting enough, six of the six people, every one of the people I was going to go visit was in the book. Now, I had done my homework, and I had a complete background on each person. So I said to this person, you have in here a Dr. Joseph Issels. He's a legitimate medical doctor. He's a board-certified surgeon. He is published in the peer-reviewed literature. His records are open to the world. He's treated over 50,000 people. The BBC did a special on him called Go Climb the Mountain. And they found that tracking the patients who had been terminally ill had no other therapy, went to him five years later, they were alive and well at a very high level. And the person who did that was an award-winning BBC uh, producer, Gordon Higginson. And I said, how do I know? I went to Ireland, didn't even have an address, and I tracked him down. This is before the Internet. And I went to his home, and I had a long talk with him about why you decided to go do this special called Go Climb the Mountain, and how much mud was heaved on Dr. Issels and how much pressure was brought on Aubrey Singer, the head of the BBC, to keep this being aired. And he said, tremendous. There was an enormous amount of pressure from special interest groups not to air this special, but the special simply showed one man without the desire for money or fame who was a legitimate doctor using interesting therapies. And he said, I would never have believed if someone told me that people who could cure cancer better than anyone else in the world would be denied the benefit of a public forum, even to debate the guy. Nothing. That's how the deep state works, including the pharmaceutical industry and the media. So I share this as background because when I brought every single one of these six doctors' bios up and what I knew about them, he didn't know a thing. And I said, well, well, what was the criteria for putting this person in the well? And he had a little article from a, 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 one of these little tabloids that in and of itself has no credibility, 
but no, no one had visited, no one had spoken to a patient, no one had, from the American Cancer Society, no one had spoken to him, no one had read any of his articles, they didn't have any of his articles, they didn't have his textbook, they had no knowledge of him except someone smeared him, and they used that smear as the only criteria to destroy his reputation. That's the American Cancer Society. And I would expose them on multiple occasions because of that. So in every area of medicine, every single area, no area left out, it is simply impossible to get accurate quality information because of the herd mindset. Meaning in medicine, virtually all doctors are allowed to practice medicine providing they're using what is called the current scientific standard method. Meaning you must have evidence that you're, you're playing by the rules. Here's the question. What if the protocols you're using not only don't work, but actually increase the likelihood of a patient dying, like with chemotherapy? And there's the irony, Luann. If every single patient seen by every single hospital or doctor oncologist in America died, and it could be proven that the chemotherapy or radiation or some combination killed them, not the cancer, not a single person's reputation be adversely affected, it wouldn't stop the flow of the next generation of people seeking that same identical therapy, the public wouldn't protest, the doctors wouldn't protest, the institutions wouldn't protest, the media wouldn't protest, and that's how it works. So we've got to understand the playing field that we're about to step on. If we don't, then you're never going to get ahead with anything. Now, you specifically were at a, I brought you I brought a woman who had advanced Alzheimer's, and I brought a young man, Jonathan Ortega, who had advanced autism, to a meeting in Washington, D.C. of thousands and thousands of medical doctors and scientists. Instead of doing what I was supposed to do, an important paper that I had done a clinical study on that showed I could reverse different types of menopausal conditions, Instead, I brought you all up on stage, and you all had a chance to tell these doctors what happened to you and that you were living proof. Autism, in your case, hepatitis, menopause, and the other one, Alzheimer's, and everyone was articulate. And if you remember afterwards, the reception area after, outside was packed with people wanting to know uh, about you. Do you know not a single one of those thousands of doctors ever contacted me, ever asked how I did it, or what was done. So this idea that somehow we're open to new ideas, that we have the patient's interest first and foremost, simply not true. And for the majority, there are certainly individuals that may, but there's no flexibility. In other words, we have only medical fascism. There is no democracy in medicine, none, zip, it does not exist. And that's because they don't want competition. So here's the irony. In the, in the vulture capitalism that many corporations and individuals thrive in, and I'm particularly holding that up for those engaged in equity buyouts and, and uh, equity partnerships and where the poor worker has no knowledge or even choice till it's too late that their company has been sold, it, they're going to be fired, so a cheap product can be made in India or China exploiting the people there. I call these people economic genocidalist. They are so far into their maladaptive, toxic, negative, despicable behavior, and yet they won't understand that because they're making money. 
And as long as you're making money, and lots of it, society will elevate you to a deferred place as if you suddenly went from a mortal to a god and you're now an Olympus and people should worship you. So we go to these people who make money exploiting other people like the George Soros's and we praise them for their ability to make money, but we never ask at what cost did this money come? And that's also true. At what cost is your medical practice? What if we only paid the doctor when they healed patients and we didn't have to pay if their therapy didn't work or if they injured a patient? Do you realize how radically medicine would be changed overnight and how quickly? Before you could blink, the entire paradigm would change. That said, when it comes to Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's is one of the easiest diseases to prevent. Why? We're dealing with inflammation of the brain. But here's the key. Anything that causes inflammation in one organ is causing inflammation in every organ because inflammatory markers, of which there are dozens, I'll just mention interleukins and uh, interferon and some of the others. These um, are prostaglandins. These are in the blood. And since the blood circulates through your body about every six and a half minutes, that means every cell in your body is being impacted by these inflammatory markers. So then the question is, what causes inflammation? Well, that's relatively easy to answer. We've got things such as uh, french fries, hot dogs, hamburgers, pizzas, milkshakes, dairy products, uh, all meat, chicken and fish, and uh, sugars, artificial sweeteners, caffeine, alcohol, and pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides. So there's a whole variety of things that cause inflammation. And when you do a lot of them, you cause a lot of inflammation. So When you look at Alzheimer's, you first have to say the first step we should do is put the fire out. Visualize everything we normally do is causing the fire. And what we can do is we stop that, go to a healthy plant-based diet, and then use the nutrients we know will help uh, put the the risk at a lower point. For example, we know that there are chemical risks involved, hyperhomestenia or high homocysteine levels which is significantly correlated with low levels of nutrients like folic acid, B6, and B12. Well, why would Americans not have enough folic acid, B6, and B12, and vitamin C? Well, because a lot of Americans think that unless they thin their blood with a baby aspirin, they're going to have a stroke. But what if you thin the blood with vitamin C and green vegetable juices and vitamin E and coenzyme Q10, where you not only are thinning the blood, but you're oxygenating the tissue, you're strengthening the heart, you're feeding the mitochondria, the energy factories, the body. That makes more sense, but that does make more profit. So they tell you not to take vitamin C and not to take any green vegetable juice if you're on these blood thinners because they don't want your blood too thin, but they never say, but hold on. That aspirin is causing people to die tens of thousands a year from the aspirin, bleeding of the stomach, bleeding of the intestine, but it also, before you bleed to death, Long before that, you start destroying your nutrients to keep the homocysteine level down, down around 6 or 5 or 4. When, you're, when you have nothing blocking homocysteine, the inflammatory uh, agent out of the liver, it escalates, and when it goes up around 15, 16, 17, 18, you're at a high risk for a heart attack. So here's the, here's the duality of monotheistic thinking. You reduce the risk of a stroke by thinning the blood, and you increase the risk of a heart attack 
by destroying the nutrients to keep homocysteine in check. So why not just keep your blood thin naturally and protect your heart at the same time? So that's kind of the same mindset with, with uh, chemical risk factors with Alzheimer's because you can end up having an elevated homocysteine level, which then ends up causing you a stroke. You also have altered taurine, T-A-U-R-I-N-E, metabolism. The body's ability to metabolize taurine, a non-essential amino acid necessary for proper development and maintenance of the central nervous system, which can contribute to memory loss. And, that's, and that is characteristic of Alzheimer's when altered. You can also have a low level of DHEA. Now, DHEA is an adrenal hormone that declines with age, but it's the master hormone that produces other hormones. You also can have a low level of acetylcholine, acetyl, A-C-E-T-Y-L, choline, C-H-O-L-I-N-E, serotonin, and GABA, gamma uh, amino butyric acid, and dopamine, and norepinephrine, which are all key neurotransmitters. And also, if you're on a high-protein diet, you're going to have estrogen dominance. If you're overweight, estrogen dominance. If you're stressed, estrogen dominance. Well, how many people are overweight? They're stressed because they're overweight, and then they go on one of these high-protein diets, or they're on a high-protein diet, which is one of the reasons they are overweight, and now you've got real spiking estrogen. Well, when you have estrogen spiking, it's really bad for the brain. It's bad for all the cells in the body. You also can be exposed to neurotoxins, such as mercury in vaccines, mercury in the fish, mercury in amalgams that go in your mouth. The silver fillings are actually mercury, lead, pesticides, and excessive iron. All those cause free radicals and also aluminum. All of that can contribute to Alzheimer's. And then there's social risk factors, factors such as low levels of education and lack of social contact and poor world um, word um, uh, fluency and emotional stress or poor stress coping mechanisms and the lack of willingness to learn new information and face mental challenges. All of that is implicated in the development and progression of symptoms of Alzheimer's. So to get beyond all this, you're going to have to look at natural therapies because I've seen nothing in orthodox therapy that has been able to slow it down, let alone reverse it. And that would be, first and foremost, exercising. I believe that people should be exercising at least twice a day. Walking is a good exercise. Light weight lifting is a good exercise. That's very important. They should also clean up their environment, get rid of all the deodorants, anti-acid, food additives, anything containing aluminum like deodorants, containing aluminum, aluminum cookware, and use natural, let's say, stainless steel or cast iron or ceramic. And remember, these metals accumulate in your body. High levels of aluminum and mercury are found in the brain cells of Alzheimer's patients. So it's not do they contribute. Of course they do. Now, bentonite, bent, B-E-N-T-O-N-I-T-E, O-N-I-T-E, is a clay-like substance that's used in a drink once a day, generally at night, and that helps draw toxins from the colon and assist in the detoxification process. I would install charcoal filters, if you can't afford a really good water filter, uh, on all water sources used for drinking and cooking to reduce the and eliminate any harmful toxins that are found in the water. Also, for social activity, I would get out and get about. There's all kinds of social things that people should be doing, and they have got to get out. Go to an opera. 
that challenges the brain in opera. Ballet challenges the brain. A symphony challenges the brain. The Cardassians don't challenge anything except why there is such an intellectual vacuum that people would watch that. So do something like learning a new language, learning a new word each day, uh, listening to challenging music that takes you from being passive to active. And then use memory skills and, and brain boosters. And like learning to play chess or backgammon, checkers, that helps as well. And establish regular routines in familiar surroundings. And make mental associations like using landmarks to help you find things. And repeat names when you meet people. And then there are nutrients. The diet has to be a plant-based diet. And uh, at least eight glasses of fresh-made fruit and vegetable juice a day. The supplements are extremely important. Magnesium is well known in calming the person down and getting rid of anxiety symptoms and generally 500 to 1,000 milligrams a day. Potassium is depleted in most people's body from stress or salt in the diet, and that causes communication problems with our brains, creates an, an imbalance neurotransmitters. So potassium, about 500 milligrams a day. The B-complex, everything in the body happens because of B-complex, pretty much. So you've got to have a 50 to 100 milligrams of B-complex, 10,000 milligrams of vitamin C, Vitamin E generally is, is great at grabbing free radicals and slowing down the damage to the DNA. And uh, so I would take vitamin E at 800 units a day. Zinc is very important, especially for dementia. And acetyl-L-carnitine, C-A-R-N-I-T-I-N-E, that's a very versatile nutrient. And it's, and it's able to, perme uh, to permeate the brain-blood barrier to stimulate and fortify the brain's nerve cells. And acetyl-L-carnitine is a type of carnitine produced naturally in the brain. And for the best impact on Alzheimer's symptoms, I generally recommend anywhere between two to 3,000 milligrams a day. Then DMAE, a nutrient found in sardines, is powerful as a brain stimulant. L-glutamine, which is converted to glutamic acid, increases GABA, a neurotransmitter essential for proper brain functioning, and there are two types of glutamine, D-glutamine and L-glutamine. Well, L-glutamine is the form that more closely mimics the glutamine in the body. Melatonin is a hormone produced by the pineal gland in the brain. It's involved in synchronizing the body's hormone secretions and setting daily biorhythms. And generally, one to two milligrams. N-acetylcysteine, that's amino acid that protects the brain from damaging free radicals by boosting quantities of glutathione, generally 500 to 1,000 milligrams taken twice a day. And then NAD is very important. Uh, it helps repair damage to the DNA. Phosphatidylserine, which helps the brain use fuel more efficiently, and it really is important to, uh, it slows down and even reverses declining memory and concentration. And then a SAMI, which promotes cell growth and repair and maintains levels of glutathione, is very important, generally 1,000 milligrams. And also the omega-3 fatty acids, high in the DHA, are good. Alcarnitine, tartrate, 500 milligrams. Curcumin, rhizome extracts, 700 to 1,000 milligrams. And cytokine, 
That's C-Y-T-O-K-I-N-E, suppress, 300 milligrams. Green tea, 3 to 500 milligrams. And black cumin seed oil, 1 teaspoon, 3 times a day. And probiotics, 5 to 10 billion, 3 times a day. So without going into the herbs or homeopathics, that's enough to get someone started. So hopefully that answers the person's question. Now, I took 25 minutes to answer that question because I like to do things in a more comprehensive way. So let's then say uh, hello to Andrew from Queens. Hi, Andrew, your turn. Hello. How are you? Good. That's good. In fact, I was talking about how birds could lose weight and how to improve my eyesight. If we can ask two questions, I'm not sure. Okay, well, the way you lose weight is generally, in most cases, how you put it on. (laughs) You know exactly how you put that weight on, don't you? Right, eating, right. Right, you didn't eat right and you ate too much. And probably some of that was emotional eating. And the more you eat, and because of emotional eating, the less likely you are to want to exercise so you create a positive feedback loop. You're stressed about something, you're anxious about something. So then you eat something you know is not good, and you generally eat too much of it. And then, where that that creates some emotional satiety for a moment, it also means your body's going to change shape. That creates additional distress, which then leads to either anxiety about how you're looking, or depression because you kind of become apathetic and give up, one or the other, or both. And then you stop exercising as you once did, and then what you fear, you actually manifest. Does that sound familiar? That sounds pretty good. Okay, so then I'm going to ask you the question. Andrew from Queens, when are you going to love you enough and be disciplined enough to reverse the process that you created? You walk out the door the way you came in it. I've been trying to lose weight. Like I'm trying to start like I had joined the gym to try to lose weight, so I'm trying, I'm trying. But I need to change my diet, though. Well, joining a gym is not going to cause you to lose weight if the underlying emotional foundation upon which your weight gain came hasn't been changed. Right. You need you need some you need to be in a support group that encourages you to make positive choices, and you are there to honor the people who are supportive of you by honoring the truth that you know you should live by. There's nothing at all wrong. In fact, I encourage people to have a buddy system, someone who will be there as a coach, a motivator. You don't want to have a pity party. You don't want to be around other people like yourself who are all kind of whining, moaning, blaming, complaining, feeling lost, hopeless, and then internalizing it or externalizing it through anger. So why don't you bring some healthy people into your life so that you can then catch up to them. You know, run with the big dogs again. That can you do good. that? No, I can. Okay, then here's what I want you to do. As of tomorrow, I want you to email me. You can email me at the following address, prnstudio at gmail.com. And just P-R-N. say, prn. P Progressive Radio Network, PRN Studio, Studio. at 
gmail.com and say, this is Andrew from Queens, and today I did the following. And just tell me what you did each day. Tell me how you're shifting that mind. You're letting go of one set of condition responses that you have no control over, and you're opening another uh, avenue of honoring your authentic self. How's that sound, Andrew? That sounds great. That sounds great. Good. Then let's hear from you, okay? And then uh, okay. starting tomorrow, every day, I want you to take the time to keep me in the loop. All right. Okay. Let's say hello to James from New York. Hi, James. Your turn. Hi, Gary. How are you? Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, you know, can I change my question? Because um, I've, you know, I don't care. I you can ask any question you want. All right. Because uh, thanks. So I have a couple of friends. Uh, who are dealing with uh, end-stage kidney disease. Yeah. And uh, one is actually on dialysis. Actually, a couple are on dialysis. Um, could you share, maybe from your experience, if, if um, you have helped anyone get off dialysis and, and regain healthy kidneys? Understand. And can, and can they work with you also? Can I recommend them to work with you since it's kind of, you know, serious? Sure. I'm, I'm happy to work with people. Understand that dialysis does not reverse kidney disease. Dialysis has nothing to do with the kidneys directly. The whole purpose of dialysis is the kidneys are not able to filter out the toxins or metabolites that normally it would have no problem with. So it helps the body get rid of those toxins uh, that build up. Now, the problem with this is that some foods that are very rich in potassium which are very good for you, uh, are not very good for a person with kidney disease. So there are protocols. Now, I don't want to give one over the air because if I do, I know people are going to misstate it and tell someone, oh, here's what you do for your kidney disease. No. When you have a serious condition, there's a specific way of approaching it. Get the information completely because I have to know from someone, how did you get that kidney failure? It was just like with, that was easy with Andrew. But if you have kidney failure, why did you get kidney failure? And what were you doing? What was going on in your life? Because if that's not addressed, if the underlying cause is not addressed, then any other therapy is not even going to be remedial. It will not sustain. So you need someone to have the benefit of complete counseling. So if you want to ask the question, Is it possible to reverse the need for dialysis? The answer is, in some cases, yes. Can you get the kidneys working in? Depends upon how much kidney you've got left to work with. And uh, once you get below 15%, it's very difficult to reverse that. But before then, yeah, there's a lot you can do when you still have some function uh, for, for filtration. It's a massive cleansing and detox program. But you have to know exactly what you're doing because... Some of the historical detoxification protocols you couldn't use because of the amount of potassium and other nutrients that your body can't handle when they can't be filtering the nutrients out. So give Luann a call, and then this way um, the person can be spoken with in depth so we get no superficial information. Luann, give your number out, please. Sure. It's 903-881-881. 7008 903-881-7008. Okay, good. Luann, we'll take another question from you. 
All right, this is kind of on the same vein of what you were just talking about, Gary. I have uh, Robert from Ontario, Canada. A very, very common situation. My father is diabetic. He hasn't made any positive changes in his life, and he suffers with neuropathy. And anytime I try and suggest something to him, he's resistant to it. How do I manage this? You don't. Okay. You, I mean, it's that simple. <clears throat> if I only have so much time in a day and people bring me a family member who doesn't want to be there, they're not going to make any changes, then that's taking away time and energy from someone who would welcome the change and stick to it. Let me give you an example. A well-known musician was brought to me by his close friend. And the person, I will not go into the condition, but they had, had multiple conditions. I spent two and a half hours with him. Now, for me, if you, you know how busy my days are, they started four and end at midnight. So I don't have two and a half hours to waste on anybody. And I gave this man everything he needed, and I simply asked him a question. Stay, stay in one place, Luann. We're getting noise. Stay in one place. All right? So I asked this person. Are you really going to make these changes? He said, absolutely. I'm, I'm starting right now. I said, why are you going to make these changes? Well, because I want to, I want to live. No, I'm no fool. And he said twice, I'm no fool. Good. Okay. Uh, about a half hour later, John Q, Q uh, you know, one of our team that helps people detox down at the retreat, this time this, this coming April, or excuse me, this October, uh, he came by and said uh, uh, that he wanted to show me some stuff, so we were walking up the street from the office. I took a little break, and right on the corner of my office, at that time it was 84th and Broadway, where I'd been for like 27 years, here was this man at a hamburger place. He had a hamburger, a cola, smoking a cigarette, and french fries, and gobbling it down. I didn't say anything. I'm not attached to that outcome. Like the Buddha says, detachment is one of the most important virtues in life. I'm there to share, to give the best I can. But what a person does with what I give is their business. I have no right to transcend any boundary. So that's what he chose. So he told me one thing and did just the opposite. The problem was not what is going to happen to that man. The problem is I gave away two and a half hours where I could have seen some other people, and I didn't. So now, unless a person comes voluntarily of their own volition and says, I'm willing to do it, I'm not the person to see. Let them go see their regular doctor. And I understand the frustration in brothers and sisters and others because they want to see their loved one helped. Well, does the loved one want to be helped? You see, we're nothing if not hypocritical in our society. Everybody wants to see something changed, but when do they change it? You know, how many environmentalists who are really, really concerned about global warming decide to go vegan, and they're sitting there talking about how concerned they are about global warming as they are eating food that contributes to it and then getting a plastic bag that contributes to it. So we have this hypocrisy, this cognitive disconnect in our society. We say what we believe people want to hear to put us in a particular light, and then we act just the opposite frequently. And that's 
That's the issue. So can this man's father be helped? Absolutely. Diabetes is one of the easiest things in the world to cure. It's, it's so easy. You've seen people come to retreat, and a week later, their blood sugar is completely normal. Their neuropathy is gone, and they're up walking. You've seen a man came the last time with gangrene, that big basketball player, that 6'9 guy, came in from California. And he said, what did, what did he say when we said you were here a year ago, and this was reversed? Your gangrene was reversed. Everybody saw it. Now you're back. And what did he say? What did he say, Luann? Fell off the wagon. I just fell off the wagon. There is no wagon. You didn't fall off anything. Just the opposite is true. You chose by determination to do things that you were smarter than the choices you made, and therefore you intentionally and with malice aforethought decided to destroy yourself. Let's stop this whole game that there's a wagon and people fall off of it and woe is me and pity, pity tears. It's all nonsense. If we're not able to grow up and be responsible for ourselves, then there is no outcome that's going to be good. But we are a society that loves to help those who will not help themselves, and we stay away from people who are willing to be healthy like they are the plague. That's the contradiction. If it's bad news and bleeds, it leads. If it's good and happy news that empowers, well, good luck finding that in anyone's <laughs> newspaper or television show. Now, if that man personally calls me and said, I no longer want to be diabetic, I will be there to help him. But if he doesn't, and it's just his son, no, that doesn't work. Now, I'm not going to go through insulin deficiency and insulin insensitivity and insulin resistance and the types of diabetes and the causes and, and to give something that the son's only going to be frustrated. So sons and daughters, here's how it works. I'll give you a good example, Luann, because you know this person. There's a woman, 47 years of age, when she came to me, and she came to me with her mom and dad, and uh, they were having some problems with memory. Uh, the father was still working a as an engineer, and the mother was, uh, she played golf every day and was happy. They lived an upper-middle-class existence out in Long Island. And I spoke with her for over an hour, and I asked them, if I give you a protocol, will you follow it? And the father said, well, what's on the protocol? And I said, well, it's in two parts. It's what you have to give up and then what you have to put in. He said, okay, what is it? And as I, after three things, he said, no, no, no. He wasn't going to give up drinking alcohol because it was a ritual. Every afternoon at 4 o'clock, he and his wife had martinis. He wasn't going to give it up. And I said, you realize you're drinking something 60 to 80% alcohol, and that's destroying brain cells every time you do it. He said, well, it hasn't hurt me up to this point. I said, sir, you've asked me the same question four times in one conversation, and you have not remembered that you asked me any one of those questions. That is more serious than slight memory loss. Then the, when I asked the wife, if she was willing to give up, she said, well, don't ask me to give up meat. I mean, we socialize, we have people over, we do barbecues. You know, meat's a very important part of the American diet. And besides, you know, uh, I'm, I wouldn't trust a vegetarian. I said, why not? She said, well, because they kind of look puny and, and not robust. We, we come from that background of robustness. I said, ma'am, do you think that a gorilla is puny, a rhinoceros is puny, a hippopotamus is puny? 
No. Well, they're vegetarian. I said, the longest-lived creatures on the earth are vegan. I said, you may have a sprig of parsley once in a while, or maybe a, a piece of broccoli if you're forced to, but you're eating the standard American diet. You're eating what you consider good cuts of meat, like filet mignon, because you can afford it. But you're, you're still eating dead flesh, rotting, morbid, dead flesh. There is no difference between you eating a dead dog's leg and eating that steak. They're one and the same. And she said, well, that's just grotesque. I said, you know, you know what's grotesque? <clears throat> Seeing people are so certain that their lifestyle is not going to have complications or contradictions to good health, that one day you won't remember your daughter's name. She said, that day will never happen. Well, jump ahead. Five years later, the mother was talking to a, a fire extinguisher, and the father was unable to function at all. Was Every time that he would go to the mailbox, he'd get all those, you've won something, but send money in, and emptied out his bank account. They didn't have a nickel. The mother is now institutionalized, and the father is about to be institutionalized because they need 24-7 chronic care. They walk off. The father's already walked off in the middle of the night. The mother walked off once, couldn't find her. And the daughter called me, and this is about a month ago. And uh, she said, can I see? I said, can't help your parents. They're, they're gone. I said, uh, she said, but I know you go to the farmer's market. At least let me come by, and I want to talk with you. So I said, all right. So she came down to the farmer's market, and we had about a half-hour conversation. And she said, you know, I wished I would have listened and convinced them, but their comfort was more important than change. And I went right along with it. So as I saw them getting worse and worse and worse, I would suggest that I make them a shake with some nutrients in it, and they wouldn't drink it. So I'd go over and I'd clean out the bad food and put good food in. I'd make them meals. They didn't like it. And when I'd leave, they'd order uh, bad food in. She says, I'm so frustrated at trying to help two people I love who are so unappreciative and unconscious of what their choices are leading to. And she says, now my mom's institution does not recognize me. And I never will forget what you said to her, that what happens when the day comes when you don't recognize your own daughter? Well, that day's come, and now my father's the same. She said, we have millions upon millions of people in the United States today who will not change. And I said, you're right. Seniors, the older you get, the less likely you are to do anything right <clears throat> when it comes to change for yourself. Young people are the only people capable of real change. The trouble is, you've got at least 90% of them who've been indoctrinated to be so selfish, so self-absorbed, that they don't want to change. Here is the problem. There are tens of millions of individuals who believe that they are entitled to, to their comforts without responsibility. They disconnect. Now, there's two types, remember. There's one type of millennial that's very conscious, very... Uh, very focused, a lot of the marches, demonstrations they show up for. They put a lot of energy into learning about the environment, their health. They're the people that you'll see going into health food stores and juice bars. 
they're the ones who are exercising, they tend to be very vigorous in the pursuit of health and happiness. Then they, come, they show up at work on time, they do their work, they're not surfing porn all day, and they're the ones who are going to go out there and whatever kind of work they have to do to pay back their student loans, which they're alone more often than not not responsible for because their mom or grandmom or granddad co-sign on the note, and that's what the banks and private finance companies are going after, even confiscating people's Social Security because the student either can't find work or the student doesn't want to work. And there's this whole entitlement mindset, I'm not going to work at a job I don't like because I'm college-educated and I'm not going to do things that make me feel uncomfortable. And if you say anything that sounds hypercritical, I'm going to just have to call uh, my psychologist and go in and hug a pillow and uh, and, and listen to some uh, some music. Yes, that's what no, I'm going they're to gonna do. No, they're going to get their protest signs out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> out of the trunk. <laughs> so so under, understand something. With all of the things that we're dealing with, being responsible, stepping up, making change, and, and realizing if you don't make change, there's a consequence. If you do make change, there's also a consequence that you can resolve some of the issues in your life. Next question, Luann. Well, you know, you've heard that saying, when they discover the center of the universe, a lot of people will be disappointed that they are not it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's an interesting question from a gentleman from Seattle. He says, I've been watching, listening to your show and watching your competitions, and you're still competing in your sport. Why are you still competing after all of these decades? Well, why don't you revisit that question by asking yourself, have you looked at an athlete who was once competitive, top of their game, and retired how they look two years later, five years later, ten years later, if they're alive ten years later? Uh, have you looked? Yeah. Have you looked yeah. where once there were abs, now there's a belly that looks like there's four pumpkins been implanted in it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I'm competing today because my entire life I've been an athlete. And I don't compete to win. I really don't. In fact, as you know, 99% of the time I've never gone back to even pick up the awards. I'm there to commend the other athletes, to encourage them. I'm really trying to challenge myself to see the older I get, can I get faster, stronger, better at what I do. So you never take your health for granted because the day you take your health for granted is the day that you stop being healthy. We like to think, I'm healthy, now I can float. No, you can't. You know, I, I've lost my weight, now I can gain it back. No, you can't. You've got to be consistent in positive thought, positive action every single day. And so that's why I'm a competitive athlete. Next question, Luann. Okay. Uh, this is um, an attorney, Robert, an attorney from New York. And he says that he has a lot of liberal friends, and they have conversations. And, and most of his liberal friends feel that the state should be the final authority on vaccine decisions. What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I would ask those same liberal friends, do they believe the state should have the final authority on taking away all of your freedoms except what they want you to have? For example, the Patriot Act, the National Defense Authorization Act, where they can, without habeas corpus, they can 
arrest you, imprison you, provide you with no legal counsel, no, no one on, on the outside seeing you, and then find you guilty and sentence you to death and kill you, and not be held legally or morally accountable for those actions. Are these the same liberals that believe that we should have gone into Libya, even though it was the most advanced country in Africa, the 54 countries in Africa, it had the best health care, free education, free home for everyone in our apartment. Uh, you could have, uh, uh, you could have a, a nice $55,000 gift when you got married. If you wanted to have a farm, they would buy you a farm, buy your equipment, buy your seeds, and you could run it yourself. They had thousands of little uh, con- uh, constitutional, uh, their own constitutional forms of democracy where local people decided their future. It didn't come from on high from central government. They could even override Gaddafi. Uh, all the oil money that came in was distributed. Part of it was distributed to all the people. So there was no debt. There was no crime. It was the Paris of Africa. When was the last time these nice liberals who supported the war and intervention in Libya and before that supported the uh, – uh, before that the Honduras uh, – the Honduras escapades, the Iraq invasion, the Afghanistan invasion, the Maui invasion. Where were these people going into, into let's say, Libya today and saying, we're good liberals. We believe that the people here should suffer. Gaddafi should die because of bringing freedom, peace, and democracy to your country. Hello. We had more freedom than any other country in the world for Islamic women. In our country, unlike Saudi Arabia and other, you know, 14th century, uh, you know, kryptonite countries, we actually respect women. And you wouldn't be beaten, besmirched if you were set upon in in Libya. In fact, it was against the law. There were more lawmakers in Libya than the United States Senate and House. You You had the same rights of divorce. You had the right to own property. Um, and it was against the law to insult women. So of all the Islamic countries in the world, Libya had the greatest amount of protection and freedoms for women and for citizens. <clears throat> so now you go to Libya, and it's a completely failed state. Tens of thousands died of innocent civilians because we were lied to. So why don't you go visit Libya and then tell me how your principles, the need to be right, based upon the myth of the media that you trusted, has made it a better world. I see ISIS, I see, I see al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, I see over 200 different factional groups fighting in Libya. And before, we had none of that. So now take that and take it to Syria. Now take that and take it to other countries. And you see what these, the good liberal who believes in imperialism and neoliberal policies around the world and if you're going to start being a good liberal and harp upon uh, capitalism, are you going to be harping on that using a cell phone or using a laptop or wearing clothes that were made by slave labor in China or Indonesia or Bangladesh? So you see, on the one hand, we have the freedom to be stupid in our country, hypocritical in our country. And instead of voting for Jill Stein, which would have showed they at least were evolved on this issue, they voted for Hillary Clinton. And the younger ones voted for, and rightly so, voted for Bernie Sanders. 
if it was legitimate and they really care, Bernie Sanders would be president and we wouldn't have this mess with Trump. But this is, I, I'm so tired of this idea that identity politics, but because you surround yourself with the certainty that you are right, then you dictate what everyone else can believe. And if they don't align with your beliefs, then you try to disparage them, condemn them. And that's one of the reasons the world is in the mess it is today. And go around and ask how many good liberal Democrats have run corporations where it was all about making money. In fact, I can name some of the biggest hedge fund managers, equity partnerships, per, uh, acquisition and mergers that are all good liberal Democrats. They hung out with Bill and Hillary Clinton and Obama. And these people have about as much integrity as Mussolini. And their victims are silent because we give them no voice and no forum. So shame on the liberals, shame on the conservatives, shame on almost every, all these people because they don't give a damn about what it means just to be a human being struggling in our society. They're just so self-righteous. And they look upon what they have as if somehow they earned it. Really? Well, then pull back far enough and you'll see all the other people that you had to stand on their shoulders to get where you're at. That's why I don't trust any politician today. I consider them sociopathic. One more question we have time for, Luann. Okay, well, here's something. There's a woman named Cheryl from New Orleans, and she said that four years ago she saw you in a health food store filming, and you brought the plight of the Ninth Ward to the public, and yet nothing has changed. And it, still, people are complaining. Why is this phenomenon? It's not a phenomenon. It's, it is the normal behavior of people who live through condition response where insecurity is the foundation upon which they make their choices. I've been down to the Lower Ninth Ward many, many times. I've filmed there many times. And the last time I filmed, I spoke with over 200 people who were in the Ninth Ward. Lower means it was below sea level. And it had the nine-foot flooding, and you could see around all the houses um, watermarks whether your house was nice or not is irrelevant. The, you know, floods don't discriminate because you're rich or poor. They're going to hit everyone. And these are the people who were, could have made it out. There were buses going out, and there were buses that were just empty. People could have walked to safety. All you had to do is walk about 20 miles uh, northeast, north, uh, and you'd have been fine, or northwest, and you'd have been fine. But people didn't want to move. They didn't want to change. They wanted to believe the Corps of Engineers and the people said, oh, yeah, those, those, those levees will hold. And they didn't. And now it's back, and they're back. And uh, so now the question is, what will happen when the next Katrina happens? And that is inevitable. It will. You'll have the same story repeated over and over again. It's as if Groundhog Day was uh, monikered over all of our national disasters. Today, right now as we speak, Luann, there's tremendous amount of fires around the southwest. There's 200 uh, million acres where more than 129 million Americans live in the southwest, including California. It's not sustainable. This whole area is bone dry. There's not going to be water there in the future. A lot of people are without water now, and now it's burning. So would you think people would say, maybe I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it's not sustainable? To the contrary, 
more and more people are moving into those areas because they were told it's a good place to live. Well, good for what? So if you think you can change the human condition by showing it some stark reality, it's not going to happen. It's never happened in my life. It's never going to happen ever. The only way that we will ever change is when the society in which we live breaks down, when, when everything goes to hell, and when we have massive, massive privations and pain, then someone will get the idea, do you think it's time to do something? Until that time, don't look for corporations, don't look for the government, don't look for individuals, except for maybe 5%. Now, 5% is still very good. That's still 16 million people. So you got 16 million people who are doing good things, are not standing in harm's way, are flexible and mobile, who are willing to make positive and constructive changes. But for the 95%, no, there's, uh, there's no happy ending coming, unfortunately. And I regret that because I like to see everyone live a long and happy life and be healthy, but that also means they have to be involved in the choices they make and not allow the Rush Limbaugh's or the Rachel Maddow's or all the other talking heads to tell them their truths. Luann, thank you. Uh, Luann, give people your number, please. Surely. It's 903-881-7008. That's 903-881-7008. Thank you, and I want to thank all you for listening. I'm Gary Knoll. This was a special edition of Talk Back. Have a nice day. 